0: Welcome to 4th Estate, the media and current affairs show on 2 scr and the Community Radio Network. I'm Lucy Robson. Today is fake news taking over the real thing. Should journalists disclose their junkets? And did everyone misquote the Grand Mufti? Joining me in the studio is writer Osman Faruqi. Hello.
1: G'day, Lucy. How are you going?
0: I'm well, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us on 4th Estate. Soon we will also be joined by freelance journalist Claire Connolly, And on the phone, I have social and website producer at Crikey, Sophie Benjamin. Hi. Hello, Sophie. Thank you so much for joining us. We all get a kick out of satirical news from sites like The Shovel in Australia and The Onion in the US. And it might come as no surprise to find that fake news stories could actually be more profitable than the real thing. A site called Share Wars has used a tool called the Likeable Engine which I think kind of sounds like a Disney film, but is actually a piece of technology, to track the popularity of satirical news stories from 14 different sites. These sites publish less content than real news sites, but it seems that the content actually can get shared just as much or even more. The average share count for each article was over 9,000, and some pieces from The Daily Current got shared more than 95,000 times. Now, firstly, um, what are you guys' favourite satirical news sites and what do you think they add to the media landscape? I'll start with you, Oz.
1: So I think actually we might be talking about it a bit later, but I'm a big fan of the back burner on SBS. I think it, it kind of gets that balance right between things that could actually be news but are actually kind of funny and insightful, I guess, for that reason. I also really liked the roast that was sort of the short-lived ABC TV show, and I think they did some stuff online as well. It's pretty sad to see it go.
0: Yeah, of course, we are talking about TV shows as well, which are hugely popular. Sophie, do you have a favourite
2: satire website? My favourite satire website is slightly more of a lifestyle one. I really like one called Reductress. And what it does is it makes fun of sites like Daily Life and Mamma Mia and those sort of things. You know, all those kind of sites that are, you know, aspirational women. Can you have it all? How do you keep a man? But in terms of hard news, the uh, SBS backburner is great as well, although I suppose we'll speak about this later. The issue with backburner is that it's only recently become much more obvious that it is from the satire part of the SBS website, not the actual news part, which I think led to a lot of confusion.
0: So did you see instances of people thinking that the backburner was actually publishing real stories?
2: Oh, absolutely, because... When the link populates onto Facebook, and this is where I would see the misposts, I suppose people on Twitter seem to get it quite quickly. Um, people would, you know, it would populate as coming from sbs.com.au, and so people would see that and go, oh, it must be real," when you know it's not clearly.
1: I think there was another issue that, and I think it still happens where if you Google news search something like Jackie Lambie, it pops up as an SBS link when in fact it's a satirical story about Jackie Lambie. It can get pretty confusing for folk.
2: Absolutely. We Every year, Crikey does an April Fool's story. And last year, we did one saying that Sophie Mir- that Tony Abbott was appointing Sophie Mirabella as the head of the SBS board. And um, our senior writer, Bernard Keane wrote it. And it was just... You know, that good, good enough to be believable. And what happened was everyone on Twitter thought, posted to us, oh, you nearly got us. And everyone on Facebook just went mad. (laughs) I'm never going to watch SBS again. This is an outrage. So I think the audience plays into it as well.
1: Yeah.
0: Sometimes I I think, and I'm sure I'm not the only one, that even our real um, politics and events that really do happen, um, you can't make them up. They kind of, like, everyone always tweets, satire is dead. But is it easy to write satire?
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good question. Like, there was a story today, a real story, that Jackie Lambie, I'm sorry I'm talking about her so much, but she's an interesting character. Her plan to deal with ISIS was to drop biscuits over Syria. Like, that, I mean, that sounds like a satirical story, but it was actually real. Sometimes I think Australian politics can seem so bizarre, the lines get blurred. So it's not all the satire, satirist's fault. Sometimes it's the fact that our politics is kind of mad as well.
2: I think our life is kind of mad. I used to work as a... News journalist for commercial radio in Queensland, um, in central Queensland and north Queensland. And some of the stories I would read, I would just think this is ridiculous. This can't be a real news story, but it actually is. So I think the line in reality is quite blurred as well.
0: Well, considering it can be potentially really cheap to write satire if you know what you're doing, but the advertising that websites Get is still real. Do you think we might start to see even more satire and potentially people mistaking it for the real thing?
2: Sophie? Um, I think satire falls, to me, it falls into the um, sort of basket of entertainment, and people all, are always going to be more interested in entertainment than the hard news because honestly, reality can be quite grim sometimes and people don't want to know, whereas with satire, You can have a bit of a laugh. So I'm really not surprised at all that, you know, the advertising dollars are real for satire. I guess the real issue is, you know, you can't have things happening like SBS's backburner. It has to be really obvious. And, of course, stuff comes from The Onion. And, you know, the real issue is these newer satire websites. People don't know that it's satire. Whereas um, established websites like The Shovel or The Onion, it's quite clear. I think that is the problem.
1: I think Raising the Onion is interesting because, you know, that's an example of, an, you know, an organisation. Everyone knows that it's satire. And if you look at TV in the States... The Daily Show, you know, great satirical show, but it's on the comedy channel. So it's pretty obvious that these things are supposed to be funny. But I think maybe it might have something to do with the smaller market in Australia for eyeballs. And we tend to not see the standalone stuff. We see organisations like SBS and the ABC investing in satire. And, you know, as, as Lucy mentioned, it gets eyeballs, it gets money. So it's understandable why they do it. But I still think it's a bit sad that we don't have more standalone sort of stuff happening as well.
0: Okay, both of you have mentioned the back burner. Um, I'm not sure if everyone saw this this afternoon, actually, but what happened today was that News Corp is um, going to let go 55 editorial staff. A couple of hours after that announcement, the backburner published a satirical piece with the headline... Fired News Corp journalists, n- journalists now free to pursue jobs as actual journalists. Um, do you think? Ha- what do you think of the timing of a piece like that? I'll start with you, Oz. Look,
1: it's definitely satirical. There's no arguments there, but I guess the question is: is it the right way to approach an issue like you know, 55 people losing their jobs? I think it probably isn't. I think you know, it's good to it's good to push. The boundaries and that sort of thing, but we're talking about, you know, real human beings and I've been in a situation like that before. I know people who have, I know people at News Corp that might be facing redundancies. I think that might be one of those instances where you might want to take a step back and take your foot off the accelerator.
2: Sophie, did you see that piece? I did. And I think the thing is with satire is you're always laughing at someone. You know, obviously the joke is always at someone's expense. And ideally, you know, to borrow you know comedy language, you try to punch up. So I guess, do you believe that News Corp journals who are losing their jobs are a marginalised group? I mean, that depends on how you feel. I think the timing was a, a bit off and I'm sure people will say, I can't believe we have a tax, a partially taxpayer-funded broadcaster poking fun at people in the private sector losing their jobs. But I think in terms of, you know, satire gone wrong, I don't think it's it's that, it's up there with the harshest things that have ever been said.
1: I mean, do you think it would be different if it was maybe someone like Chris Kenny or Miranda Devine losing their jobs, but a lot of the folk at News Corp are just young journos out of university trying to trying to get a gig, and they might be some of the ones on the chopping block. So in terms of punching up, if we don't really know and if it's those kinds of folk, that's why I think maybe this one might have been better to, to leave in the drafts folder.
2: Yeah, I mean, I have heard that it is going to be senior editorial staff. So, I mean, it really depends on how closely you look at this stuff, and. I I kind of feel, you know, things to get offended by. It's a bit of a pick-your-battles kind of situation. Fair
0: enough. You're listening to Fourth Estate, and we've just been joined by freelance journalist Claire Connolly. Hello, Claire. Hi. Apologies for being slightly late. That's okay. Fashionably late. Thank you for joining (laughs) us. What are your favourite satirical
3: news websites? I mean, The Onion is really got to be right up there. Sometimes you don't even need to read the articles. The, the headlines themselves are so comedy that it really encapsulates the, the feeling of the zeitgeist before you even get into the nitty gritty of the actual like finer details of the satire. I think the fact that it's been able to remain a newspaper for so long is testament to just how funny and satirical it is.
0: Why do you think we love satire so much in in such a serious news climate?
3: I think the serious news climate is reason for the popularity of satire. Satire has been the leading format for... Uh, education in terms of ensuring that the voting populace knows what's going on. And satire is proof of that. And the only reason that satire works is when people laugh. And the only reason that people laugh is because they're an informed populace. So I think the more tired we become with the news, the more effective satire is. But it also relies on an informed populace that actually wants to read what's going on out there. And I think with the proliferation of data that's on the internet now, it's a lot harder to be informed. And I think that's where satire plays an even more crucial role.
0: All right. Um, Did you read the piece on the back burner today that we were talking about just a second
3: ago? I did indeed. Did you think it was funny? Uh, I didn't think it was particularly funny. No, I don't think there's a lot funny about journalists losing their jobs no matter who runs the publication um, but uh, in the immortal words of Louis CK if you're going to make a controversial joke the only way it's going to succeed is if it's funny and if it's not funny it's going to be really offensive and the only thing that prevents an offensive job uh, an offensive joke from being offensive is if it's really funny and that article wasn't funny
0: well uh- We still love The Backburner, I think. We'll still read you.
3: (laughs) Oh, I adore The Backburner and everything that it does. But like, you know, SNL and all of the great comedy shows and podcasts uh, and and publications like The Onion that are out there, you know, you're only going to make your mark, you know, five out of ten times if you're lucky. So, you know, I don't think they should be burned at the stake or anything for this. It just wasn't that funny, that's all.
0: This is Fourth Estate. I'm Lucy Robson, and I'm joined by freelance journalist Claire Connolly, Sophie Benjamin from Crikey, and writer Osman Faruqi. It's now 10 days since the Paris terror attacks, and in the wake of an Islamist terror attack, there's no escaping the calls in the media for Muslim leaders to condemn and denounce the acts of extremists. And last week, the Daily Telegraph decided that one of those leaders doing the condemning wasn't condemning the Paris attacks Strongly enough, the Grand Mufti of Australia was depicted as the Three Wise Monkeys on the telly's front cover, which complained that the Mufti sees no problems, hears no concerns, and speaks no English. Claire, what did you think of this cover? I thought it was
3: fairly appalling, but pretty standard fare for the telly. Yeah. <laughs> Oz, would you agree?
1: Yeah, I think, like, there are things to critique the Mufti around, and you know, I actually have some critiques as well, but. You know, when you're talking about um, putting anyone who's from an African or Middle Eastern or Asian background in uh, portraying them as a a monkey, like that's got pretty clear, you know, well-known stereotypes associated with it that are pretty negative. And the amount of people that would have had to have gone through before it was eventually signed off, I mean, it does show that there is some sort of cultural problem at the telly when it comes to addressing these sorts of issues.
0: Sophie, did you see the cover?
2: Yeah, I did. And, you know, I agree with um, what... Claire and Osmond said, I think that, you know, it's right, there are some legitimate, you know, critiques that could be made of the Mufti, but unfortunately the telly in, you know, typical telly style has gone in hard, has gone in cheap and, you know, squandered an opportunity to make actual you know, comments. But then again that's the telly. The telly is not known for subtlety or nuance or insight even. So you know, that's, that's kind of their bag. Appalling, but not out of character.
0: So would you say it was definitely Islamophobic?
2: Well, God, it was definitely bigoted. I mean, you can see the telly has a very clear um, mandate, I suppose. They don't want to hear reasonable statements from Muslim leaders because there are plenty out there. They've really got an angle that they're pushing with this uh, to the detriment of anything else.
0: The Mufti did actually seem to condemn the Paris attacks in various Facebook posts and interviews, as other Muslim leaders have as well. But is anyone listening, Oz?
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good point. You know, it's sort of this catch-22 for Muslim leaders. You've got to condemn the attacks, but when you do, we'll find something to criticise you about them anyway. I think, you know, people should just realise that the Conservative commentariat in particular are going to pick, you know, the Mufti and other Muslim leaders to have fights with. That's how they get their clicks. That's how they enrage their audience and build up their profile. So I think it's all a bit of a shadow boxing. It's a a bit of bullshit, actually. Um, I think probably the best thing for Muslim leaders like the Mufti and others to do is acknowledge that's going to happen and just get better at speaking directly to, you know, audiences, whether it be Muslim members of the community or non-Muslim members of the community, not rely on publications like the telly to filter their message.
0: Claire, how do you think that... um the Muslim leaders could engage more directly with the community, like I said?
3: Frankly, I think the Muslim leaders and Muslims around the community are doing a great job as it is communicating with the community. I think the problem whenever something like the Paris attacks occur is that people that look more like me than Osman here don't like the rhetoric that Muslim leaders use in which to respond to attacks and all of the commentary around that reflects that they criticised it but not harshly enough and they drew connections to the Middle East but not to the groups that we actually like Let's get serious here for a minute Australia and the US and the UK and every other Western developed nation has been doing trade with countries like Pakistan and Saudi Arabia who themselves have been funding terror since time immemorial So if people are getting upset that the grandmother hasn't criticised the role in the Paris attacks enough, I really think they ought to be looking at their own leaders and saying they're not criticising enough the role that our governments have played in funding the problems in the Middle East and in causing massive issues of fundamentalism. When you see papers like this, it's actually drawing people who might be at risk of becoming more radicalized. It's just making ISIS's job easier for them. The thing that daily readers and tele editors ought to keep in mind is that the Grand Mufti has more in common with the Australian people than they do with ISIS. The Grand Mufti himself has said he has been the subject of attacks and threats by ISIS, but instead the Daily Telegraph has decided to associate him with a terrorist group rather than with the Muslim community who themselves are fleeing the terror that they're inflicting. And I really think that this headline and these papers are causing more problems than they're solving.
1: It's actually a really interesting point because there was an interview with Tony Jones in the Sydney Morning Herald, I think, yesterday, about how the telly interpreted you know, the whole Zaki Muller sort of controversy as though he was a supporter of ISIS, when in fact he was sort of making the opposite point. So it sort of seems like the telly, on one hand, wants to present itself as, you know, we're the people defending Australia from ISIS and we're protecting you from terrorism, when actually, in reality, they're completely misinterpreting everything that's happening on the ground. And as Claire put, in some way, they're actually playing into the hands of, of extremists. And I think, you know, Walid Ali made that point excellently. Um, last week.
0: Sophie, I'll get you to
2: respond to that as well. Yeah, I mean, that's... You know, there's nothing much I can really, really add to that. I, I think we are in 2015 and I think the Mufti should be communicating directly to the people by using the internet, videos on YouTube, all that sort of stuff, because if you are relying on the telly and people who don't want to help you they you know they don't want to they have an idea of how they want to present your message and that is how they're going to present it no matter how you intended it so you know i really really think that's the way it's got to go
0: i have to say to me it just felt so kind of retro in a horrible way that we would be having this level of conversation about islam in australia in 2015 did anyone else have that impression that we'd gone back in time 10 years or something
1: it felt like longer than that. Like, you could think, you know, it's one thing to have a discussion about the Mufti. It's another thing to read, you know, Australia's most widely circulated paper and to see an Egyptian Muslim leader portrayed as a monkey. Like, that's that's like going yep. back 200 years, you know?
0: Yeah. Um, uh, what, what is that? The 80, 1890s? Yeah,
1: totally. Know. yeah, yeah
0: even worse than the nineties. Okay. This is fourth estate. My name is Lucy Robson and I'm joined by Claire Connolly, Sophie Benjamin and Osman Faruqi. Any journalists who have covered the Israeli-Palestinian conflict know that they need to tread very carefully to avoid accusations of bias. But that didn't stop six Australian journalists from spending the past few days in Israel as part of an annual junket organized and paid for by the New South Wales Jewish Board of Deputies and the Australia, Israel and Jewish Affairs Council. The journalist spent time with Israeli officials in Israel, visited Ramallah on the occupied West Bank, and they visited the borders of Gaza and Syria. It seems like they were carefully watched by their minders. When journalists for the Australian Shari Markson split from the group in a hospital in northern Israel where injured Syrians were being treated, she was quickly reprimanded for stepping out of line, and security officials demanded that she delete details from her phone and notebook. Now, it's worth noting that marks and stories from her trip, as well as those by the Australian Financial Review's Aaron Patrick, didn't contain a dis- disclosure letting readers know who organised and paid for their trip to Israel. So, should journalists disclose who is paying for their overseas trips? Sophie?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's completely appalling if you're not, because you're not being transparent with your readers, and I think readers deserve it. And that's that's the way it goes. If someone else is paying for you to do your job, you know, they're going to expect something in return. And I think trying to pass it off as 100%, you know, independent-minded journalism is just not on.
3: Claire, what do you think? Yes, absolutely. I think all publications should be disclosing any and all trips that journalists are sent on with money that simply isn't theirs. I'm surprised that it didn't happen in this case, but I would put it down to an issue of space or simply human error. Um, In the defence of News Corp, they are usually quite good at putting declarations on articles where junkets are involved.
0: Uh, this particular junket in particular was interesting. Uh, when it comes to such a vexed issue as the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, are newspapers doing the right thing by their readers in accepting organised trips from any side in the first place, Oz?
1: No, I don't think they are. I actually think I think Shari deserves props for sort of being a journalist on the trip, but I think she shouldn't have been on it at all. And I, I actually think it's... It's one thing to declare, and I think there are some instances where it's okay if you're covering a tech event or you're covering something that maybe isn't as controversial as the Israeli-Palestinian conference. If you're covering if someone's launch, whether it's you know, a new game or, or, or some, a new gadget that's come out, declare who took you there and then write an unbiased article about it. But something like this, the Jewish Board of Deputies and AJAC have got political views that align themselves with the Israeli government. And this is something they've been doing for a long time to you know, try and give senior editors of Australia's biggest news publications and senior journalists a very particular view about the issue. So it's not just about reporting on something that's going on. It's about actually telling people this is what the Israeli... Um, Palestine crisis is about, but only from our side. And I think that that's something that is pretty dangerous when it comes to media reporting in Australia.
3: Sorry to disagree with you, Oz, but uh, unfortunately I don't think any journalist would get to do any travel and any reporting on things that are really important if it weren't for the junket. I wish that it were the opposite, and I wish that if there were money in journalism budgets that junkets would be a thing of the past, but unfortunately we wouldn't find out about things that are happening even if it is being hosted by an organisation like the Jewish Board of Deputies which I might disclose my cousin, Vic Aladef is the head of. Um, just putting that out there. Um... I wish that it wasn't the case, but I do think that journalists have an obligation to report on what's happening, and I think they're perfectly capable of distinguishing bias when they see it. What they ought to be doing is, if they are going to go on a junket, take the ticket, but the best journalist discloses and then destroys the entire premise for the trip in the first place. Good journalists come back almost having burned their sources, and sometimes you've got to take that risk. And I think particularly when we see someone like Shari testing the boundaries of the Jewish Board of Deputies and of security procedures, while, on the one hand, quite problematic. On the other hand kind of prop. She was doing her job. She was getting contacts. And she wasn't towing the line of the people that were taking her there. And I think that shows that you can actually be objective while traveling on someone else's dime. And if you're not trying to, you shouldn't be on the trip in the first place.
1: Sure. But I think maybe the issue is that from what was filed, it wasn't actually anything that critical. And I think, you know, Sophie McNeil is a good example, an ABC Middle Eastern correspondent who's been filing from Palestine and Israel for a little while. She actually wasn't even offered the trip, despite, you know, being maybe the obvious person from the ABC that would be sent to go. And I think even one of the Australian journalists last year did a great uh, partnership with the ABC's Four Corners looking into the issue. And both those people were funded by the news organisations and they, you know, presented, I guess, stories that even if you can say that someone funded to go on a junket is being unbiased, there's a perception, and I think that can be an issue in and of itself, that if, you know, even though it's declared and it's said, you know, I'm an unbiased reporter, there's a problem there because the audience will question it, you know, like, are you actually able to be as unbiased as if your news organisation was sending you or if you were self-funding yourself there? But I think, it, you know, it's clearly an issue that we've got declining media revenues and newspapers are struggling to send people and, you know, foreign bureaus are closing. That's something that we need to find a way to resolve, but I'm not sure the, end, the best way of resolving it is just by getting you know, organisations like the Board of Deputies and countries and organisations with agendas to, to fund people to go overseas.
3: I couldn't agree with you more. I think this is really a sign and an argument for more funding for national broadcasters and other news organisations. Sophie, do you think that junkets and funded
0: trips are a poor replacement for proper foreign reporting?
2: Well, of course, but, you know, junket, you know, sponsored content is just the, the 2015 version of junkets, you know? I don't think junkets are going anywhere. They're just being given different names. I think what it comes back to is you've just got to declare that you've been on it. To not declare that you've been on it is dishonest. And the issue, you know, Shari getting in trouble with you know Israeli security forces is a really good example of, you know, you cannot have it both ways. You can't come as the guest of someone and then try to be disruptive and try to break the rules like you just can't do both it's like being invited to someone's house and then you know taking a painting off the wall and smashing it because you don't like the look of it you can't have it both ways.
3: Sorry, I don't mean to, to be rude, but I really couldn't disagree with you more. Shari didn't steal a piece of art. She didn't steal something that was of value to someone. She was going on a junket to report and in doing so tried to push the boundaries in order to increase her contact so that she could provide potentially more objective journalism than the line that she was being fed by the people that were flying her there. I don't think it's a fair comparison. And I do absolutely think that if you can't go on a junket with your own news agenda, what are you doing as a journalist? I mean, really? I've been on plenty of junkets where I've broken stories that have gotten me in plenty of trouble, and maybe I haven't been invited back, but was it worth it? Sure. I mean, hey, it got me here, right? Like, It's all keeping us in business. It's all keeping us publishing stories that are in the public interest. I don't like junkets, but at this stage, there isn't an alternative. And I think what Shari has actually proven is that you can have your cake and eat it too.
2: Uh, that even is... if it puts your life at risk, though. But and it didn't put my life people at people risk. Was, well, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about Shari. It didn't you know, put her it... life
3: at risk either. It potentially put the identities of Syrian Um, victims of civil war and of the bombings at risk. And that is a legitimate security issue. But that doesn't mean that Shari should have just taken the ticket and done her job and published a piece of propaganda on behalf of the Jewish Board of Deputies.
1: But how easy can it be for a journalist to do their job if they're being escorted around by armed guards who are threatening them for doing certain journalistic things? So I think maybe we need to separate out the idea, one thing, to go on a trip and maybe learn more, but let's not pretend that that allows you to report unbiasedly because of, you know, the way it's being run.
0: We might have to continue this discussion another time. Um, I think there would definitely be enough material for a whole other episode of Fourth Estate. However, that is all we have time for. I'd just like to quickly say... um, Uh, a few words about the Australian journalist Adele Horan who died at the age of 64 over the weekend. She covered social issues for the Sydney Morning Herald for 18 years until 2013. She was diagnosed with lung cancer in 2014 and revealed last week on her blog that sadly her luck had run out and she will be greatly missed. That's it from from us on Fourth Estate. Thank you to my guest uh, writer Osman Faruqi, Sophie Benjamin from Crikey and freelance journalist Claire Connolly.